Hi, everybody, and welcome to InBeta. My name is Charles Bradley, and I'm the Executive Director here at Global Partners Digital. Last week, we invited Lisa Vermeer of ICNL to the show and explore the different ways in which government responses to managing the health pandemic have had an impact on civic freedom around the world. And today, we're going to be looking a lot more at data and the way in which data is being used by governments and companies to manage the health pandemic. Well, I'm really excited to have Nick Cauldry here um, for our third podcast in the in the series. Um, Nick, welcome to the show. Hi, Charles. Fantastic. Um, Nick, it'd be great to get a quick introduction um, of you and, and a little introduction to your work as well. Yes, uh, my name's Nick Cauldry. I'm Professor of Media Communications and Social Theory at uh, the London School of Economics, uh, where I've been teaching for nearly 20 years now, also at Goldsmiths. I run there a course on uh, data and social order, which has just started this year, and which has grown out of my work in the past five years, really, on questions of data and the building of a, a new social order, I used to work on media power generally, but in the past five or six years, all roads seem to point to big data. So um, that's what I've been working on uh, a great deal recently. Fantastic. And and it seems that this, this topic becomes more and more relevant with, with every day. Um, yeah. So there's, a, so there's a new book that you've written and, um, and uh, sort of a, a term that you're, you're working with around uh, data colonialism. Um, I wonder whether you could um, help our audience understand that term a bit more. Yes, um, people will be familiar, I guess, with the idea that something big is happening with capitalism in relation to data. Um, probably people have heard of the surveillance capitalism thesis of Shoshana Zuboff and the other variants of that, and they're all very important. But what Ulysses Mejias and I, and Ulysses is from Mexico, what we've been working on for the past four or five years is a sort of, uh, a sort of bigger framing even than that, which is to argue that right now, in the current five, ten years, we're in the middle of a sort of turning point in history, uh, a game-changing moment when the way capitalism works is itself being fundamentally reworked uh, in terms of its means. And this is happening through a new land grab, if you like. Um, if we go back 500 years, the very core of colonialism uh, by Spain and Portugal initially was to grab territory, to grab uh, the minerals and the resources of the land and then also the bodies that could work the land, normally in the form of slaves then. But the core was the grabbing of resource and the idea that two countries in Europe could suddenly... Uh, have under their control the resources of the whole world. It created unimaginable wealth, unimaginable power, and it took uh, Spain and Portugal 30, 50 years even to grasp what that meant. And we're arguing in our book that something similarly epoch-making is happening now. But what is grabbed is not land anymore. Um, it's not even uh, the people to work the land and to work minerals it's actually human life itself. It's the very possibility that you could make economic value out of the flow of our daily experience, about, out of what we think, what we feel, the way we act. And this for us is the bigger framework that holds together all the changes right across capitalism. Uh, it's quite common to say 
that the target is social media platforms or maybe a famous um, search engine such as Google. And there are certainly lots of problems there. But our argument is that this transformation is affecting every form of capitalism from uh, charity work to small organizations to development organizations, governments, welfare organizations, schools, uh, hospitals, you name it is involved in the idea that human life is now just an input to capital and to management and the creation of value, including for governments as well. And that's the core of the idea that what's going on now is a colonial moment in which our, the very core of our freedom as human beings is at stake. Because until this point in history, we haven't had to think about being literally a direct input to the capitalist machine but now we think that's what we have to confront yeah absolutely yeah and it's very very interesting to sort of to open up that aperture and to get that broader broader framework and try to put some of these these smaller parts of the piece of the puzzle um, um together um i think the interesting thing right now is that we're at a moment where um data and more information is is being needed to deal with and confront the sort of the the evolving uh, pandemic of, of, of COVID-19 and a lot of the sort of infrastructure that's been brought together to, to be able to um, input, to create the input of individuals as part of this broader system um, are being utilised to, um, or are being sort of requested upon uh, to support the, the sort of management of this, of this current pandemic. Um, and this is quite quite uh, sort of uh, fundamental at the moment, where we're seeing sort of lots of positives to that, um, and and the way in which it can sort of help evidence based um, sort of policy making and, and and sort of track individuals and prevent the spread, but also the sort of the broader broader questions on um, on privacy and, and and other rights that this engages with. Um, I wondered what you thought about the the impact that this sort of call for even more data gathering and even more specialized input of data from individuals might be on on data colonialism in the medium and long term well i think in the long term it's going to reinforce it but let me just uh, stress right at the beginning that ulysses and i are not arguing that data is bad um obviously right now society needs data about the spread of the disease we need data to feed into the epidemiological models and so on and health is always an area where more data is needed so there's there's no doubt about that the question is data for what purpose on what terms is it under social and civic control uh, or not that's the key question uh, as in terms of whether this is a colonial moment or not and things are quite ambiguous at the moment um, the various apps uh, and ways of tracking whether one's met someone who's infected with the virus all those various proposals um, they, they take various forms. So some are definitely more worrying than others. Uh, so in China and South Korea, the idea is to track phones directly through their GPS signals or through the identifying signal given off by any phone when it makes a, a connection. And those clearly will identify people. So unless there are very special privacy uh, protections built into that, this will be information that can identify your movements 
unless you're sure that's not going to be stored in the future, that is information about you that could be used against you in circumstances you can't predict. The better proposals, the ones that happen in Singapore and the Apple-Google proposal right now, do attempt to deal with the privacy problem by using Bluetooth signals, the um, encrypted uh, numbers uh, codes, rather, which are sent between phones when a phone uh, tries to um, is on Bluetooth and is looking for a signal and interacts with other phones. Now, there's no doubt that Apple and Google and also the developers in Singapore uh, and the universities involved did a lot of work to try and encrypt this so that none of this information can be a identifying and all the key matching information is stored only on particular phones rather than in a central archive. The problem though is maybe a longer term one here which is that these apps only work if you have Bluetooth switched on on your phone. Um, now you may or may not have Bluetooth normally switched on on your phone but if you do, then you will be revealing the presence of your phone to other people when you get close to them. And there's nothing you can do to avoid that. And that is a continuing privacy risk, which will be inherent in using this app, even though the information the app gathers will be encrypted. So it's a sort of side effect, which is a definite privacy uh, concern. There were some other issues about these apps as to whether they're actually going to be effective. Um, it's not entirely clear how you rule out lots of false positives because Bluetooth signals go over hundreds of feet, whereas uh, the medical distance we're concerned about is just two meters. Let's assume they solve that. But again, that won't really deal with this fundamental privacy concern of having Bluetooth switched on on your phone the whole time. And there's also another longer-term worry which is that if we become used to the idea that being safely in society, doing the things we need to organize society depend on us having a smartphone, carrying that smartphone with us all the time, having it on, having Bluetooth switched on and so on, then we're already building into the basic social functioning quite a high threshold which will expose us permanently to... Uh, a sense of dependence on these systems, which will make it all the more difficult to um, resist other aspects of data colonialism, which are definitely worrying. One example of that, a very simple one, uh, which people may not know, is that marketers for a, a few years have been using Bluetooth signals as a way of targeting individual phone holders with tailored marketing messages as they enter supermarkets. This is more advanced in the United States than here, but it's a trend and Bluetooth has been used as the entry point by marketers to get at people's phones and to link them as the owner of their phones with other identifying data that they have about that person so that they can make these offers. So there's no question that Bluetooth uh, raises certain privacy issues which we need to consider. And remember, Bluetooth, the Bluetooth-based app, is the most favorable, the most privacy-respecting version of these various proposals that are coming in right now. So we certainly need to be alert, very alert right now. Absolutely. And this is um, this sort of uh, the trade-off of, you know, these, these potential sort of positive impacts, as you say, that, you know, 
the the creation of data and the collection of data in and of itself is 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 not something that you you you, you question or you, you don't see the value of it's just how it's going to be used and how it's um and for what for what purposes um and i think one one particular question that I, I i had was around the sort of the the, the colonial sort of aspect of of the of the framing that you're putting together and the the issue around the different technology companies and providers and the sort of the concentration of power within these um you've named already a number of very large um western companies that are being uh, that are working um to develop this technology and and to deploy it um do we does that mean that certain um, large companies will become the um, uh, have the ability to be able to deploy things that are that do have health benefits and, and broader social benefits, but but we have to sort of trade that off uh, for the other uh, sort of side effects as you've been mentioning from a, from a privacy perspective or of or other rights. Well, that's a very interesting broad question. It's going to depend how it plays out in individual countries. Um, so data colonialism is worldwide. It's a worldwide transformation and it's going on just as much, if not more, in China as it is in the so-called West. Um, and in China, the balance between corporations and the state is very different from in the West. Um, so it will depend how it the exact details of the institutional settlement, if you like, in particular countries. But I think there is a movement underway here, and this isn't the only example of it, of states which are becoming weaker and weaker and certainly do not have the data resources or the machine learning resources that corporations have. States becoming more and more reliant on corporations for the solutions that are necessary for basic social function and basic running of government here. Uh, this is a public health crisis. It's certainly true, as many people said, that uh, the emotional appeal of the state in relation to national health provision and so on is greater uh, right now. At the same time, the state, to do the basic things it has to do, is becoming more and more reliant on the functioning of large corporations and their analytic power. So it was announced recently that National Health Service has entered into a deal with Palantir, one of the main data analytics companies in Silicon Valley. So I think we are in the middle of a shift where corporations' relations to the state and states' reliance on corporations is going to change quite radically and probably permanently. And that could have, as you suggest, uh, further implications in locking in uh, data colonialism as a way of living as a way of doing things. Um, that doesn't mean to say that we don't have any choice, though, um, because we are at that moment of history, a turning point, which may last 10, 15 years, where civil movements, where social resistance, where the powers of our imagination to think whether this is the direction we want societies to go in still will have some force. And this is a time where we absolutely need to have these debates in public and I'm glad there's the beginnings of a debate around the apps and other devices being used in the Corona uh, 19 case. Absolutely, and that neatly comes on to sort of you know my my concluding question of you know what what can we do like what what's needed from human rights defenders both within the UK and 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 around the world um, to make sure that we do sort of mitigate these risks and and have this um, this rich um, uh, discourse on these particular trade offs. 
Well, I think there are a few things, and the debate is already starting to emerge. First of all, we've got to ask tough questions about whether these apps or other forms of tracking are actually effective as they say they are. Um, and there are the various security aspects looking very hard at the NHS's proposal right now for building on the Apple Google API and building an app. It's not entirely clear at the moment for some of the reasons I mentioned. So we need hard questions. Are these really necessary? Will they achieve what they say they achieve? Secondly, if they will, then there need to be uh, sunset clauses. There needs to be a very clear agreement written into law that these can only last during the period of the public health crisis um, and that they will come to an end automatically at that point. Um, thirdly, it has to be built into the operation of these apps that they do not gather identifying information and that uh, insofar as they may need to at certain points that that information is not stored any longer than the public health crisis and used only for the most extreme and limited circumstances. Uh, so, in other words, we need to be very, very clear about the purpose of these apps. And that is, in a way, my worry. This is a genuine public health crisis, simply without parallel in any of our lifetimes. It would be fair to say that things are not exactly going straightforwardly in Britain right now. There are a lot of doubts about the success of government's policy. And the temptation of government just to be able to say they've done something by building a public health app based upon the work of re very reputable major global corporations is going to be overwhelming. So this is a time that we absolutely have to be on our alert as to what the cost long-term of those government reactions may be made under huge pressure and at great speed will be for the long term. We need to be really vigilant right now. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Nick. That's really great to sort of bring all those together and, and some really specific questions that we need to be asking. And I really hope that we can uh, contribute to that and work with others to do so as well. Um, thanks so much for joining the show. Um, and we hope to have you on again soon. That's a pleasure, Charles. Fantastic. And thanks, Nick, so much for joining us on the show. As with every week, we wanted to highlight some of the things that we've been reading that might be useful for others in the field. Open Democracy have launched a new weekly bulletin highlighting measures by governments to suspend civil rights and increase surveillance. There's a great piece by Zoe Schiffer in The Verge on how the newly prominent social publishing platform Medium is dealing with COVID-related misinformation. On Medium, there's a new piece co-written by GovLab's Stefan Verhoes, looking at the different ways data can help us address COVID-19. We'll also be talking to him next week on the podcast about GovLab's ongoing Data for COVID-19 initiative and the living repository that they've created. All of the reports and material mentioned on this podcast will be available as links next to the podcast. And we'd also like to shout out to the GPD Digest, which is available monthly, and there's a link to subscribe um, connected to the podcast as well. That's all we've got time for, and we'll be doing another podcast next week. Until then, goodbye.